Coming up on the Get Lean, Eat Clean podcast. Everybody seems to know about B12, for instance, that uh, that B12 is an absolutely essential vitamin. You can't get it at all from plants. So you have to either supplement or get it from, uh, from, from animal source foods. And, you know, it's quite serious. A B12, a serious B12 deficiency results in neurological damage and brain damage. So it is extremely serious. And, and so I think even that vitamin on its own should make you think, well, are we really destined to eat plants only? Because why would, why would nature make it that way that we can't get this really essential vitamin, right? Hello, and welcome to the Get Lean, Eat Clean podcast. I'm Brian Grin, and I'm here to give you actionable tips to get your body back to what it once was 5, 10, even 15 years ago. Each week, I'll give you an in-depth interview with a health expert from around the world to cut through the fluff and get you long-term sustainable results. This week, I interviewed the author of the great plant-based con, Jane Buxton. We discussed how diets that exclude animal foods can damage your health, along with key nutrients you might be lacking if you avoid animal protein, why does a powerful, rich church want to take meat off your plate, are cattle to blame for our climate change, the shocking origin of your Kellogg's cornflakes breakfast cereal, and her one tip to get your body back to what it once was. Really enjoyed my interview with Jane. I know you will too. Thanks so much for listening and enjoy the show. All right. Welcome to the Get Lean, Eat Clean podcast. My name is Brian Grin, and I have Jane Buxton on. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Very happy to be here. Happy to have you on. I've heard you on some other podcasts, and I, I wanted to get you on specifically because of your recent book. I think March of 2023 came out, The Great Plant-Based Con. Uh, mm-hmm. Love the title. Uh, what sort of I led you down this path of getting into... Um, talking about, you know, why plant-based might not be the best way to go for health? Yeah. Well, it's a good question because it wasn't a subject that I had written about before. Um, And I would say that um, I wasn't an author looking for a subject. The subject literally found me. I became so engrossed in it, passionate about it, and I dropped the other things that I was writing. So it really was a case of the subject was kind of too important to ignore. And the reason it, it sort of um, came to me that way was 2019 seemed to me to be a year when the plant-based narrative was getting so much louder and stronger and more dominant. And there were a few things that happened that year. The C40 uh, Cities Initiative, which is very plant-based drive through lots of cities around the world. Um, Game Changers that very famously came out and, and attracted a lot of attention and made some young people, a lot of young people that I knew and saw around me, made them think about going vegan and feel guilty for not trying it. Um and I was looking ahead and thinking that we might have a very big health crisis on our hands if somebody didn't put the alternative view to this and start to get some reality checks into this whole discussion. And so I thought about it through most of 2019. I did research on my own, and then I just decided, no, it had to be a book. It had to. I wanted to get out there and be part of the, the discussion. Now, at any point, were you a vegan or a vegetarian? Because... Sometimes no. you'll see, okay, no, yeah. I know a lot of people in this community yeah. have been, and they, they've they come to 
omnivory because their own health failed, that kind of thing. No, that wasn't the case for me. Although what I will say is when I was growing up, I was the usual, you know, teenager, young woman who was enamored of the whole low fat uh, theory. I loved vegetables more than I liked meat. Mm. And I would, you know, go to a steakhouse and and have a baked potato and a big salad when other people were eating beef. It wasn't because I was opposed to eating beef. It's just I love vegetables. Um, but later, when I got older, and particularly um, after my 50s, I had noticed that my diet needed to be different. I needed to be, it needed to be more protein. Um, and uh, I wanted wanted that for every benefit that protein gives you, but for muscle um, density uh, in the main. Um, it needed to be lower carbohydrate. Um, and uh, so I, my personal diet did change, but it wasn't from being a vegetarian. Yeah. Cause you'll see that sometimes people have these big health transformations and then they say, well, you know, I got to, you know, write about this, but this was came yeah. to you more from, I know you mentioned the C40 initiative. What was that? Yeah. So that was an initiative, um, aligned with the eat Lancet, uh, planetary diet, uh, initiative. And it was initially 14 cities around the world, including Sao Paulo, Toronto, London, a bunch of others, who committed to some initiatives to move towards plant-based. And it's written down, they have a sort of manifesto, which is available if you seek it out online. And the goal is no meat and dairy being consumed in those cities by 2050. It's pretty drastic. Wow. Yeah. And did did they do this mainly because was it more of a money thing? I don't, you know, a lot of times you see these initiatives and it, you just sort of follow the dollar, and that's the reasons they that, that these cities do this. Um, what were the yeah. what was the reasoning behind it? Well, do you know I didn't look into the dollar connections on that one, yeah. and I I don't know that that's the strong reason for this. I think it's it's a lot of it is virtue signaling when you look at it at the political level like like that with a mayor of a city like ours, for instance. It's very much virtue signaling. What am I doing about net zero? How are we going to get our city towards that? I've got to be seen to be doing the right thing, and um, they think that that is the right thing. They think because they haven't done enough research to know what the dangers are, particularly when they start to talk about rolling out all vegetarian programs in schools, you know, with kids uh, under the age of of 15 and um, very young kids too. Um, So that's when it starts to get dangerous. So I was really attracted to the subject and felt compelled to write about it just as a concerned citizen more than anything else. Nothing to do with, as you say, my diet or anything, but as a concerned citizen and a parent. Yeah, because um, I mean, if you listen to this podcast um, a lot, you'll understand that uh, animal-based proteins obviously have a lot of benefits like yeah. protein bioavailability. Um, you're getting a lot of the things that you're not going to probably get from plant-based uh, proteins. Uh, what? Let's talk about some of maybe what are the, some of the key nutrients that you found from from your research and, and writing the book that um, people can sort of lack when they're not having animal proteins. Yeah, uh, I mean the list is really quite long. <laughs> yeah. I mean, we everybody seems to know about B12. For instance, that uh, that B12 is an absolutely essential vitamin. You can't get it at all from plants, so you have to either supplement or get it from uh, from from animal source foods. 
And, you know, it's quite serious. A B12, a serious B12 deficiency results in neurological damage and brain damage. So it is extremely serious. And and so I think even that vitamin on its own should make you think, well, are we really destined to eat plants only? Because why would it, why would nature make it that way, that we can't get this really essential vitamin, right? So that's the most obvious one. But then you move into things like vitamin A, and, and the form that we get from plants is not really vitamin A, it's beta carotene, it's not as bioavailable. Um, and some people can't even convert it to the bioavailable form. Mm-hmm. Um, you have D3, vitamin D3 is far superior to the D, D2 that is found in plants, and it's much more um, active in the body. Um, you have K2, you have heme iron versus plants iron. And again, heme iron is much more bioavailable. Um, uh, then you have these kind of lesser known things that people don't talk about a lot, like um, creatine. and That was the uh, one that I was thinking, yeah. Chlorine. And what I have found really fascinating as we learn more, and I learn something new every day about nutrition. I'm a bit of a geek about it, and I'm always reading the, the latest thing to come along. I noticed in the past couple of months, there have been two studies. One was about the uh, a particular um, uh, protein type um, in um, dairy. And the other was about creatine. And both of these studies had come out and articles were being written about them, about how, how important they were and how they could be cardioprotective. Mm. So... I thought, well, this is great. So ingredients or nutrients, rather, that are from animal foods are being recognized here. But then you scroll to the end of the study, and rather than advocate for eating the foods that provide these very important nutrients, the authors say we are working on developing a supplement. And and it's people are afraid to recommend that we eat these very important foods where we can get these nutrients. It's kind of like a a dissonance that we have, you know, all these nutrients are great in animal source foods, but for goodness sake, don't eat the animal source foods because they're bad for you. It's, it's completely mad. Yeah. I, I feel like as a society, we've gotten a little bit caught up on like what supplement should we take or, um, you know, what protein shake. And, and I'm, I, t- I do, I do protein shakes every time, not like every day, but from time to time, and I'll add some creatine in there, but mm. I think most importantly, if you can get it from the actual foods that you're eating, that mm. that is, you know, from nature itself, that's the most beneficial way of getting any of these nutrients. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, and there's a big difference between, say, taking one or two supplements because your your body doesn't seem to to create that much of the, of the vitamin from the foods. Um, or because you can't get access to the particular food that you might want quite as much. That's a big difference from having this multivitamin kind of approach, which you definitely need if you're on a vegan diet. Yeah. Yeah. That would be the big thing. If you're vegan or vegetarian, you obviously would have to supplement a lot more than a lot if you were on more of an animal, animal based diet. What about the argument regarding climate change? And I know that's a big one. I've, I've read a few books. Rob Wolf has written about it um, in the past. What did you find from your research that was sort of false, this false narrative around that, you know, being a vegan or vegetarian is actually good for the climate? Yeah, it it is a false narrative. um, And it really has taken hold. I mean, there's almost nobody uh, 
in regular circles that you can talk to that that won't be shocked if you say to them that actually cows are not the drivers of climate change. So uh, people have really bought this hook, line and sinker. But really, I think there's some very there's a simple way of looking at this. And then there's a more complicated way. The simple way of looking at it is, okay, globally, cows are responsible for about 14 and a half percent of emissions. Um, That number is exaggerated for reasons I, I can get into in a moment. But the rest of the emissions picture, 85% of emissions come from other things. They come from fossil fuel use in industries primarily. Mm. So it's those industries which are driving carbon in the air and in the atmosphere rather. Um, So how anyone can think, you know, Pat Brown the other day, uh, Impossible Foods founder, was on camera on this latest Netflix documentary which is diabolical, in my opinion. Um, and he was his his closing line was that if we got rid of cows, we could eradicate and make up for all the other emissions from all other sources. Now, hmm. how bonkers is that, given that 15, eight, 15 to 85 percent sort of ratio? Then you get into the nuances of the the story, which is the poor cattle the way their um, their emissions are calculated is on a life cycle basis. So everything that goes into the meat on the plate gets counted. Whereas for something like transport, um, we only count the tailpipe emissions, the direct emissions. So it's really underplaying transport and overplaying cattle. And if you were to do calculate them in the same way, you'd find that globally cattle would be 5% of emissions, whereas transport would be 14 then you look at countries like the US, um, where beef are responsible, beef cattle are responsible for 2% of emissions. And the picture gets even more ridiculous, how anyone could think that we would save the planet by getting rid of that. Mm-hmm. You know, and there was a study done uh 2018, I think. Uh it was quite fresh when I started researching this. And it it calculated it, it was a study by Whitehall. White and whole, and it calculated that if all of America went vegan, we would reduce emissions by about two and a half percent. That's it, and that would be at considerable nutritional cost. So people would suffer as a result of that. So whatever way you look at it, and there are other there are other nuances as well, which um, which do affect the equation. But I think what the bottom line is that the emissions and the 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 impact from cattle is just overblown. It's very overblown. That's not to say that we can't improve, um, that we can't do better things with cattle for the land, for the soil, uh, to reduce emissions even more. But um, you know, this whole scapegoating is just insane. Yeah, and um, what was the burger company um, that you mentioned? The the plant based impossible. Burger? Yeah, impossible. Yeah, they've been le- trying to sort of lead that narrative, right? Like, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, and you know, I don't know if people realize this, but Impossible Foods or Beyond, I must get this right, but one of those burger uh, replacement burger um, companies has entirely funded the Stanford plant based school as it were um Hmm. which is run by ardent vegans and um and also um 
And they they were the people that did this study, which went into the Netflix documentary. You know, that that was a severely compromised net, uh, documentary. It was entirely biased from the get go by by the funding and by the people who were carrying out the study. Um, and it's just another in a long line of those Netflix documentaries, which unfortunately have people persuaded. So I was in an event yesterday and I was talking to a woman and she heard about my book and she said, oh, really, that's very surprising. Tell me something about that. And, and, I, and I asked her where she, what kind of information she had. And she said, well, I watched the documentary Cowspiracy. Hmm. And I, I heard that cows are responsible for 50% of all emissions. And she was completely flabbergasted that that was not true and that it was an exaggeration by three times or more. So unfortunately, these silly documentaries do have impact and they stick with people. And it, it's, it's kind of depressing to see that. Yeah, you would think like with all these documentaries on either side, like there should be mm -hmm. some type of vetting. <laughs> yeah. That, right? Well, like, effective. Yeah. Because, I mean, you know, we talk about some of the education that goes on that or lack of or misinformation that's being taught in schools, let's just say. Mm -hmm. um, and this is the same thing. Like these documentaries are being sent out to the world and people just assume that they're right. It's like... Mm. You know, Although I do think maybe people are getting smarter. I don't know whether you think that, but I think people are getting more cynical. Mm. Um, and um, again, at another event I spoke to on Tuesday, there were about 100 people in the room. And uh, the consensus view was that this had been a very quiet Veganuary, that there's kind of a retrenchment. and um, A very quiet what? Veganuary. Do you oh. have Veganuary? Over there, yeah. Oh, is that is that a UK? Well, it started. I think it's global, but um, I think it's quite big here. Uh, it's where people go vegan for a month to try it, and it's really promoted by vegan societies and charities and whatnot. And um, and it has been attracting more and more attention for the past few years. But this year was super quiet. You didn't hear anything about it much. Mm. And so everybody in this room that I was talking to had noticed that and they'd also noticed that there's quite a retrenchment in the plant-based sector itself, you know, product wise, mm. people are struggling. Companies are struggling. Uh, restaurants are closing. Um, have we reached peak vegan already? Are we about to see a turn? And is that why people are a bit more cynical about this new documentary that's come out? Are they being, are their eyes already open? You know, I, I wonder. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, uh, we have dry January here yes we have that too yeah. <laughs> okay uh but i've not heard of v, v well what, how do you say it veganuary January. January. okay yeah. i want to see that yeah, yeah that's interesting um yeah. i mean it's interesting because if you look at a label of impossible burgers i remember for, there was a time where i this was probably like six years ago was sort of like a pescatarian and mm -hmm. i would occasionally make like a veggie burger on top of a salad and a bunch of stuff on it and i remember looking at the veggie burger ingredients because i was at least i was savvy enough to do that and mm. um i was like i don't want all these things like this is like yeah. so manufactured like um all these you know with the vegetable oils and things like that i i did find a few that were like five ingredients i'm like oh okay i can mm -hmm. use that but 
you know, even the fact that if you look at these, a lot of these impossible burgers and what's the other company you mentioned? Um, Beyond. Yeah, the Beyond. Beyond Burger. Yeah. I mean, just looking at the label itself just will tell you whether it's vegan or not that you probably shouldn't eat it. Yeah, yeah. And there's a whole new crop of those things coming up, of course, those um, highly processed foods. Uh, there's one called Wicked Kitchen in the States, and that was, again, promoted by this Netflix thing. And you look down at the ingredients, and it's horrifying. I mean, it looks, there's dextrose, there's methyl cellulose, there's fillers galore, there's something that looks very like a trans fat. It's this strange fat that they describe that looks very trans fat-like. Um, and But it, it made me laugh, actually, because the documentary goes along and says, um, uh, processed foods are very, very bad for you, really bad for you. Don't mm. eat them unless they're a vegan processed food. And then they're terrific, you mm. know, so there's right. this double standard being applied to all of this really highly processed food. Yeah, we should yeah be eating. right. Just doesn't make sense. I think if you're an informed consumer and you at least have an idea about reading ingredients and labels, mm-hmm. it, it just doesn't doesn't mm. but it's like when i went to get food for my dogs when i, when I first got i adopted my two dogs and the vet's like oh well you can try what we have and i look and i'm reading the label i'm like is this really what dogs eat like yeah you know like this kibble with a, these fillers and these and and you know these ingredients you can't pronounce and i'm thinking you know i think i'm going to transition them to raw and i just yeah. been feeding them raw raw you know raw diet ever since and you know they they've been thriving and they're thriving right yes yeah, so my sister is a vet in canada and she and i have been along on this journey really together we we debate a lot about these things she uh, she helped me to think about the book and how i wanted to put the message and um but she noticed a long time ago that the food that was being recommended for dogs was just rubbish. It was the equivalent of human crap food. Right. Um, And so um, she started to recommend, you know, raw feeding or at least grain free, you know? So, I mean, dogs Mm -hmm. really don't need grain. That's for sure. Yeah. Um, So that's what I started. I haven't gone over to raw yet because my kitchen setup doesn't, I'm a bit worried about separating it all, but um, maybe it's, it's a, it's a mountain I need to climb. Well, yeah. And I mean, now I buy, uh, like it's frozen raw. So it just stays in my freezer and then I'll just take it out like five, 10 minutes before they're going to eat, they eat it. Mm-hmm. And then it's, it's pretty easy. It's definitely pretty more. Okay. Yeah. Pretty easy for sure. Uh, it's definitely more, a little, well, it, it can be more expensive because these food companies, these dog companies, um, uh, you know, they give you, they charge a little bit more for raw food, but you know, course, it's like yeah. anything else you got, you pay for what you get. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and your dogs are healthy so good they're great yeah um you can see them wandering around behind you a little bit <laughs> yeah they were they were they're, they're they've settled i i i base my my when i do podcast interviews around my dogs and <laughs> and whether yeah. they're going to be uh sleeping Happy or, or not, not. Yeah. yeah uh yeah. let's touch i think you touched a little bit on your book about sort of the the, the origin of the kellogg's cornflakes breakfast mm-hmm. cereal uh mm-hmm. Yeah, do you mind touching on on that? I, I think it's that's been out for a while, but it's an, it's very sort of disturbing, I'd say. <laughs> it is disturbing. I mean, of course, the person with the most in-depth knowledge of this, uh, I always must credit her is Belinda Fetke, who lives in Tasmania, who put together the whole picture really. Um and uh, really this the story which always fascinates people because 
nobody really has heard of the Seventh-day Adventist Church or very few people in their daily lives. They don't see it around. Not every village has a Seventh-day Adventist Church, certainly in this country. Um, so people are, if I ever mention this, um, or if people read the chapter and ask me about it, they're they're always thinking, I can I know that they're thinking, well, why should we really be that concerned? It's just a little church. It's a fringe church. What What's the problem? Mm-hmm. But the problem lies in its origins and in its how it's interwoven itself into particularly American dietary policy. So very briefly, Ellen G. White founded the church in 1863 based on a vision from God. And one aspect of that vision was how people should eat. And it should be the Garden of Eden diet, which was a vegetarian diet. Um, she developed a philosophy which was, you know, that meat eating would make uh, cause people to sin, uh, to have impure sexual thoughts, masturbation, all of those things. And J- John Harvey Kellogg was a young boy at the time who helped her to type out these pamphlets. So he was obviously reading them all. He was absorbing this message about meat being uh, making people impure. And he went on to to um, found a company which was creating foods that would fight against that. So cereal based foods, which would not make them impure and which was, you know, um, curb the tide of masturbation and, and terrible behavior by young young men. So that was the origin of the Kellogg's company. And I think if people knew that, that, that that's the origin <laughs> of modern vegetarianism, they might be a little shocked. Um, but then it gets worse because his protégés, including um, a dietitian called Lena Cooper, took this philosophy, which is very vegetarian-oriented, anti-meat, into the dietetics textbooks, all the schools. They founded the school, the dietetics schools. Then they um, they started to infiltrate uh, dietary advice committees, the guidelines committees, which have become such a fixture in America and which do influence guidelines around the world. And a great many of the members of the dietary guidelines committee today are Seventh-day Adventists. Um, and I was shocked right at the outset of this um, my research when I came across this study in 2019 by Marco Springman who's an environmental scientist, but he's also a vegan. And he came out with this study, which is the typical study that we are seeing these days when people model all the different foods. And it's always animal foods, bad, plants, great. Um, And it was reported globally and in The Economist here, very high profile magazine. Um, And then I looked at the study and saw that it had been peer reviewed by uh, a leading professor at the Seventh-day Adventist University, Loma Linda. <laughs> and he also sits on the Dietary Advice uh, Guidelines Committee. So that's how we continue to be influenced by Seventh-day Adventist thinking. It's because of the people who were involved in the science pretending that it's science, when in fact it's philosophy, it's belief. <laughs> it, it's quite scary, actually, because it's really under most people's radar. Yeah. So the origin of Kellogg's cornflakes was yeah. mainly to help make people uh, not have kids. 
I guess so. Or no, not have impure sex. I suppose I don't know what they thought about normal sexual activity. Okay. But it was it was impure, illicit sexual activity, masturbation in particular, and undue thinking about this. Hmm. I guess it was all pretty Victorian. Wow. Yeah, yeah. It, it is. Uh, and, you know, it, it's interesting because you see studies that come out and, and I always say, well, who funded the study? Right. Like, yeah. what's you got to sort of follow the money on all this stuff and mm -hmm. just be um, cynical, I guess, is, is, is that's the right word um, mm. or skeptical, I should say, <laughs> skeptical yeah. on anything, any study that comes out. Right. And my my advice to people, if they don't have time to read all the studies, which, of course, people don't. Um, is go straight to the discussion and the limitations at the end of the study. This is where all authors of studies have to tell you exactly what the study didn't tell you, mm. what was wrong with it, why the results may not be that convincing. That's what you want to know first. Yeah. And and like there are so many studies going one way or the other. It's like mm -hmm. you can sort of drive yourself crazy. I think most importantly, and I'm not sure what you think of this, Jane, but like, self-experimentation you know like try it out yourself see how you feel i mean um you know we can always say what our experience is or if we're working with clients what their experiences are but i'm i'm always a fan of self-experimentation and just sort of finding what what works for you i i agree the sort of n equals one experiment right yeah i think yeah. that they're valuable and and the re one of the reasons is we're all so different that and our biochemistry, our genetics, everything is so different that what makes you thrive may not make me thrive and, and vice versa. The only caveat I would add to that is if you're going to experiment with diet and food, be honest with yourself mm. and really understand what's happening in your body, track what's happening in your body. So there's no point in thinking, oh, I'm really thriving on this vegan diet. If you're not measuring your B12 scores, stores and five years later they're nothing and you're already suffering the damage you have to keep track you have to be you have to be on top of it i think if you're going to try anything other than a balanced omnivore approach you have to be on top of what that's doing to your body yeah no doubt because sometimes you don't feel those symptoms until years later right, right. yeah and at, at that point you know you might be deficient in a nutrient that you know um, like you mentioned, the B12 or whatever else it is, um, choline, creatine. Um, yeah. Or your so, blood sugar might be out of whack, you know? So yeah. you need to be keeping on top of glucose. You might be pre-diabetic by the time you discover that you've been eating too many carbohydrates. And this is the thing with a with a vegan diet. It tends to be high carbohydrate because there is nothing else. You, you've taken all the, the animal proteins out. You've got to fill them with something. And those sources of protein and iron um, that are plant-based tend to come with a high carbohydrate load. It's just inevitable. Right. And and I'm not like anti-carb. I've actually introduced more uh, whole-based whole food carbs into my life, mainly from fruits. Um, yeah. But I, I want, one thing I do keep an eye on is like protein intake. And mm -hmm. I find with individuals, most people, for the most part, are under eating protein. Um, I don't think you need to go crazy with it. I think sometimes that gets a little bit blown up. Like I think like uh, what I've heard is about 0. 0.7 to 0. 0.8 grams per per 
per body weight per pound of body weight is is, is sufficient for most people. Uh, but if you're not filling it with protein, then you're just adding in a bunch of maybe junk that you shouldn't be having. Um, mm-hmm. And protein is obviously very satiating as well. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. What well, What are your thoughts on vegetable oils? Ah. <laughs> uh. Well, I did cover that in the book. I called them one of the bad guys, you know, that that might yeah. sneak into your diet inadvertently if you decide to cut out animal foods. Um, right. Because, of course, you're cutting out animal fats, so you're bound to use more uh, vegetable fats. And vegetable oils are cheap, mm. and they're ubiquitous. They um, Now, they, there's their biochemical content, which um, which makes them... Uh, bad for our health because they oxidize so easily when they're heated and in the body. So we get oxidation and that's never a good thing. Um, They also have a very high omega-6 content. Um, And and really that we need to be watching that because the omega-6 content of our diets has increased dramatically in the past 50 years. Um, The content of our adipose tissue has increased. So omega-6 linoleic acid is has gone from about 9% to 22% in in those 50 years and um that can't be good it can't be normal it's not the way we were built it's not it's not the way it should be so i avoid them like the plague but to avoid vegetable oils you have to avoid processed food because every almost every processed food has vegetable oil in it because it's cheap they're never going to put put butter and they're rarely going to put olive oil. Yeah. I recently, uh, it's not out yet, but I've had him on a bunch. Jay Feldman. I don't know if you're familiar with Jay. He, oh, yeah. I yeah. love his. I, he's great. Yeah. And he, yeah, he's part of sort of that bioenergetic viewpoint on maximizing cellular energy. And one of the yeah. culprits of maximizing cellular energy is this high PUFA content that you're getting mm-hmm. from vegetable oils, especially cooked vegetable oils. Mm-hmm. Um, so, it, yeah. It's definitely a narrative that that seems to ring true. I mean, I just go back to like the common sense of like if you just research how they make vegetable oils. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> right. You really like, want that in your body. Yeah. Yeah. Like it's just like, okay, this just doesn't seem right. Like I don't yeah. care like what the experts say. Like I, I like this refinement process just doesn't seem right. It's so mechanical, isn't it? And uh yeah, it's yeah. um it's extraordinary that, but I think you're right. That's it's a um, it's a common sense approach. If you just throw ask people to think about that, they would come to the right conclusion. You know, whereas our our ancestors, our our grandparents were eating goose fat, you know, butter, tallow. Um, yeah, back, you know, they weren't the 19- they weren't eating low fat snack wells. You remember those? They sure were not. No, <laughs> I remember my mom bought those, and you know, I was younger at. I don't know how the 10 years old, let's just say. And I never liked them. I always thought they just tasted weird. Do you know what I'm saying? Some people like they taste fake to you. Yeah. They just, yeah, (laughs) there was something that was wrong. Just like my into, I remember thinking back and I never really liked them. Um, Mm. those snack, well, low fat ones. I'm sure if you're, if you're in, if you're probably 30 or 40 and above, you probably remember those, that that low fat craze. Yeah. Yeah. What, types like what's your routine i i like asking about routines i'm just curious jane like what's your routine as far as just like eating and um 
and and how do you sort of balance out your meals uh, throughout the day? Well, um, I am. I would say I'm mostly low carb. I'm not fanatical about it, but I do better um, without too many carbs. Um, so I'm usually under 40 grams of carb a day, 50 grams. Um, a blowout day would be definitely 70 grams of carbs. Um, uh, I eat probably two meals a day. Uh, so most of the time I'm eating late breakfast, early lunch, and then dinner. Mm-hmm. And more recently I've added in, um, uh, an electrolyte drink in the morning just to get my hydration up. And, um, I do a 24 hour fast about once a week. Oh, so, uh, and so I like a, don't like, like dinner to dinner sort of dinner thing. To dinner. Exactly. It. And it's not very difficult. Um, uh, you know, you're hungry by the time you get to an hour before your next dinner. Yeah, you're hungry. But and the reason I do that is partly about keeping weight under control, but it's also trying to get some sort of autophagy benefits of autophagy, uh, which now it's debatable whether at 24 hours I'm getting those benefits because I have read that it, they don't really kick in till you get to 48 hours. Um, all the same, I think it can't, I can't be bad. <laughs> I must be getting some benefit for that. And maybe I'll work my way up to the 48 hours every now and again. But, um, uh, but, but somebody asked me the other day, how had my thinking changed since I wrote the book? Oh. And really, uh, I'm just much more conscious and I'm much more aware that the reason I'm eating food is for nutrition. It's a little, of course, it's about taste. It's about entertaining people. It's about culture. It's about enjoyment, family, sharing. Food is all of those things. But at its very core, I want it to make me really healthy, to make me, you know, to enhance my longevity, to to enable me to enjoy life. And so I'm very conscious of trying to get all the nutrients that I want. And it's always in the back of my mind, you know? Yeah. I mean, that's a great way to think about how, how to eat, right? Like I always say, like, obviously being active is important as well. And, and whether one comes first or the other for, for some people that I work with, if you get them moving and doing the right things, let's just say strength training, which I think is really important for anybody, yeah. especially yeah. as you get older, um, then they start to become more conscious of what they want to eat and what they mm-hmm. want to put in their bodies because they know they want to perform at a certain level. And uh, and that's really what food is meant for, right? To maximize, mm-hmm. like Jay would say, your cellular energy and perform at, at, at sort of the peak level that you can get yeah. to. Um, yeah. And so that's why it's like, you, like you said, you perform maybe a little bit better on a lower carb approach. I've tried both. I mean, I, I go back and forth a little bit, but like, I've tried eating certain things and trying some pre-workout things and Mm post-workout and just sort of seeing what works. Um, I will say just some people, I think there's, it can be a little bit um, like a false uh, presumption is like, if you go from a standard American diet and then you go to any diet that takes out processed foods, you're going to probably feel better. Right. So like people go from a, standard American diet to a vegan or vegetarian diet, they might feel better, which is obviously rightfully so because they're not, they've gotten rid of a lot of the, the processed foods that mm. they were normally consuming. But you got to ask yourself eventually, will, will this serve me in the long term? 
you know. Yeah, and, and people call that the vegan honeymoon, right? So yeah. you can feel good, and the honeymoon might last a few months in some people, it might last a few years in other people. Mm-hmm. But at some point, for most people, it kick the end of the honeymoon comes, it arrives, and you don't feel good. Um, which is why we see, you know, the typical duration of vegan diets is about three months. People try it, and then they go back. Um, they'll go back for different reasons, but I think one of the main reasons is going to be they don't feel good. Yeah. Well, this was great. What um, your book? Uh, you came out March of twenty twenty three. How long did it take you to write it? Well, it came out March twenty three in the US, I think, because it was later than in the UK. It was Mar- It was June twenty twenty two in the UK. So it's two years old here now. Um, the paperback is one year old. Um, and um sorry what was your second question was it what <laughs> oh i just asked you how long it took i've written a couple oh, of books i'm always curious it took how... a couple of years and then a year in editorial and legal because mm-hmm. it was when it hit the publisher's desk when i submitted the final version um the lawyers were a little bit antsy about it because I was being critical of quite a lot of established organizations and people. So we we went over it to be very careful about exactly what I was saying um, and whether it was libelous or not. So that was a long process and probably a worthwhile process. Yeah. They wanted to make sure that you weren't stepping on too many people's toes. <laughs> yeah, or at least if I was going to step, then be very sure about the facts that are backing up. And I think it's really interesting because nobody has come forward to question what uh, what I've written now. Could be because they're just ignoring me, um, <laughs> or it could be because uh, you know what I'm saying is true. And the, if they protest, then we, you know, their secret is going to come out, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Well, the great plant based con. Yeah. Why eating a plant-based diet won't improve your health or save the planet. Great book. Uh, and you can find it everywhere, right? On Amazon. It's on yeah, your, it's and on bookstores your... that are brave enough to stock it. <laughs> because some of them aren't. Or they hide it in the back shelf. So you have to go find it sometimes. Mm, okay. Yeah, that, it's like I, had a, I wrote a kid's book years back. And I was getting it into different small bookstores, which was great. But you know, we know that like, I don't know what percentage of book sales is online, but I'm sure it's a high percentage. Yeah. Yeah, so, it is. It yeah. is. And, and, you know, if, if it gets more books into more people's hands, that's great. Yeah. 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 Cause I think books like this are important to read and, and you know, they're, they're, uh, this narrative that, you know, you must go plant-based to be healthy. I think is like you said, I think it is sort of maybe quieting a bit, um, from just people like yourself and just getting on podcasts and getting the word out. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I talk to anyone I can about it in my real life too. So I'm probably <laughs> poor, but <laughs> it's part of my role. Yeah, no, I hear you. And uh, I appreciate you coming on the podcast. I'll ask you, actually, let me ask you one last question. Mm-hmm. Um, if you were going to give one tip, I might know it, but maybe, maybe it's something a little different to individuals who are looking to get their body or mind back to what it once was. 10, 15 years ago, what, what one tip would you give them? Um, can I have a two part tip? Sure, I'll give you two. <laughs> um, stick to real food, avoid stuff in packages. That's a pretty good rule. And make sure you have some animal source foods at every meal. Even if it's just an egg, 
please, because uh, uh, they're superfoods, eggs. Um, and I think you can't go too far wrong if you do that. Love that. Love that. Uh, well, Jane, I appreciate you coming on. Love the book. And um, we will put links in the show notes for everybody to check out uh, your materials. And uh, thanks again for coming on the podcast. Thank you very much. Okay. Have a good day. You as well. Thanks for listening to the Get Lean, Eat Clean podcast. I understand there are millions of other podcasts out there and you've chosen to listen to mine. And I appreciate that. Check out the show notes at briangrin.com for everything that was mentioned in this episode. Feel free to subscribe to the podcast and share it with a friend or family member that's looking to get their body back to what it once was. Thanks again and have a great day.